My name is Vern Collins. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Boone United Methodist Church, and Pastor Ed is in Crossroads right now, and last time I saw him, he was wearing a coat, and he was wearing shoes, so he hadn't gotten the dress code memo for over there yet. We're working on him. I'm grateful to be able to be in here and grateful to be a part of our uh, a staff uh, that, that is so gifted and so passionate about God's word uh, and, and the privilege of being able to open the word uh, together. This morning, as Jeff has said, is the beginning of the season of Advent. Uh, and I would like to kind of set up where we are going for these four weeks of Advent in preparation for Christmas Eve and then the celebration of, of Christ's birth. We will be in Luke's gospel uh, this morning and every Sunday morning through the, the, the Sundays and the season of Advent. But I, I'd like to in, invite us to consider um, this morning this idea of what it means to come home uh, to Christmas. I, full confession, I am a home body. I, I love to travel. I love to go off the mountain. I love to go see family in the Piedmont. I love going to the coast, but I perhaps one of the things I love the most about it is getting to come home. And without fail, every time we drive up the 421 mountain from Wilkesboro and are approaching uh, the Parkway Bridge and, and, and see the, the view um, off to our left, my wife will turn to me and say, go ahead and say it. And I will say, can you believe this is where we live? Without fail every time. Can you believe this is where we live? Can you believe this is the place that we get to call home? I, I've always had a deep appreciation for home. Uh, I was blessed to grow up in a neighborhood full of, of children, most of them boys within uh, the, you know, three or four years of age with each other. It was great for us. It was a nightmare for all of the parents, but we loved it. And I had a friend who lived four houses down from me. His name was Kirk Sprinkle. And I spent countless afternoons and countless Saturdays over at Kirk Sprinkle's house. But the time that he invited me to come and spend the night at his house, things were a little different. In the middle of the night, I made his mom call my dad. Actually, it probably wasn't, the, I don't even think it was nine o'clock yet. But it was late enough for me to feel like this is not home. This is not familiar. This is not a place I feel like I can lay my head. And so my dad came and got me about 9.30 so that I could go home. Home was familiar. Home was a place that I knew. A 2012 Smithsonian Magazine article describes the feeling of homesickness as coming face to face with the sharp boundary that exists between home and not home. The same article by, opens up by briefly unpacking this idea of home and asks this question, when did home become embedded in human consciousness? Is our sense of home instinctive? Are we dinning animals or nesting builders or are we at root nomadic? For much of the earliest history of our species, home may have been nothing more than a small fire and the light it cast on a few familiar faces, surrounded perhaps by the ancient city mounds of termites. But whatever else home is and however it entered our consciousness, it's a way of organizing space in our minds. Home is home and everything else is not home. That's the way the world is constructed. Home is home and everything else is not home. For me, Kirk Sprinkle's house was not home. As familiar as it was in my childhood, as much time as I spent in that place, it was not home. 
It was not a place that I felt comfortable, not a place that I felt like I could lay my head. It was not a place that was familiar. There's this idea of home that we see in Scripture. We see in God's relationship with God's people. It's an idea that has nothing to do with a promised land or nothing to do with a holy city or with the temple that was constructed there. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are incredibly important to the arc of of the story of God's relationship with God's people and the ways that God would use his people to go on and bless the entire world as he promised to Abraham that he would. Those things are important. But the idea for as the idea of home for God's people extends far beyond the, the boundaries of a city or the existence of a temple, far beyond a geographical location. As early as God's interactions with Moses in the book of Exodus and then peppered throughout the Old Testament, we begin to see show up this promise, this idea that, that God makes in relation to his people of the fact that God's home is with his people. Exodus chapter 29, verses 44 through 46 says this, then I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God. They will know that I am the the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Later on in the Old Testament, when God's people are exiled, when the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, when the temple has been ransacked, we find that God's people are having a bit of an identity crisis because so much of who they understood themselves to be was wrapped up in this place. And yet what we find is that God reminds them that he is faithful and present with them. That just as in their wilderness wanderings, when God tabernacled with his people, God's heart for them was that they would find themselves at home, not in a place, but at home in a relationship, at home in the promise and the goodness of God. See, they had forgotten that there was nowhere that they were, nowhere that they could be that God was not with them. Even in God's judgment of them, God was present with them in their exile. And too often we find ourselves feeling this sense of homesickness, experiencing the sharp boundary between home and not home, as the article says. For too much of our lives, the pain that we experience and the questions of of who we are, we experience because as, as one speaker I heard says, we spend too much time and energy and effort trying to figure out who we are by continually trying on who we are not meant to be. We spend too much time and energy trying to figure out who we are by trying on or putting on who we are not meant to be. You see our identity, our purpose, our meaning, the good news of the Christmas season is that we are meant to find ourselves at home with God in a deep abiding relationship. And that God, because he knows our struggle in living into that relationship is not willing to leave us alone. That God in the person of Jesus is willing to put on flesh. And as Eugene Peterson says it in John chapter one in the message, God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Dwelling with us making his abiding home with us. 
that we might find in that relationship who we are meant to be as God's children. And so for these four weeks, the season of Advent, we want to invite you to consider what does it mean to come home to that promise of Christmas? What does it mean to come home to the good news? And friends, more than that, what does it mean to take advantage of the opportunity to prayerfully consider those people in your life, those friends, the family, the people that you might cross paths with on a regular basis, consider what it means that they might need an invitation to come home to the good news that is God entering our midst in the person of Jesus. This morning we will talk about this coming home to good news. Who is it in your life that needs to hear the good news that's wrapped up in the arrival of Christ into our world? Who is it that needs an invitation to come home? Maybe it's people who have been a part of our midst. Maybe you know someone who has not stepped foot in the church since they were a child. Maybe it's someone who has never stepped foot in the church. But what if they heard from you, hey, you could come home with me. Home to discovering the goodness of God in ways that you haven't before. Our passage this morning comes from Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1. As I said, we will be in Luke's gospel the entirety of our time in Advent. Luke tells the story of the arrival, the birth of Jesus in a way that the other gospel writers don't. Listen to these words from Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring, bring, back to many of the peop, bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. 
When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Luke builds his narrative of the announcement and the birth, the coming of Jesus in a way that is different from the other gospel writers. Each of them is unique in the way that they tell the story of Jesus. But Luke takes careful, gives careful attention to rooting the story of the birth of Jesus in what has happened before. Luke begins in the temple. As I said, something that meant so much and was so important to the people of God. Luke begins with a priest, Zechariah, who would find himself in, in the, uh, a part of the, the company of priests, the order of Abijah. Now, if in your quiet time you spend you know, a great deal of time in Chronicles, that would mean something to you. You'd be like, oh, yes, Zechariah, yes, the order of the priests of, of Abijah. I re- that, that means something to me. I remember that. If, however, Chronicles is something that you tend to gloss over because it's a lot of names and a lot of orders then take heart because you would probably be in good company. Though it might not mean something to us as we read that that is the order in which Zechariah serves, it would have meant a great deal to the people of God. That there was something in the works before anyone ever realized it. And I wonder the ways that God might be at work in your life, that God might be in wor- at work in, in your midst, that God might be at work in your circumstances in ways that you are not even yet aware of. Luke also situates this story in the time of Herod, king of Judea. That would have meant a great deal to those who were hearing this story told the first time and those who would go on to read it. For us, we need a little bit of a a history lesson. King Herod, by some, was called a great king, but not because of his countenance, not because of his temper, not because of his demeanor, but because he was responsible for a great number of building projects that took place. As a result, he was called great, but those who found themselves under his rule would say, no, he he is the opposite of a great king. He is jealous, He is envious, he is power hungry, he is afraid to lose power. It was said that it would have been better to be a pig in Herod's stable than to be one of his sons. Any that opposed him, he put to death. We read in Matthew's gospel that out of the fear of the news of the birth of this king that we know as Jesus... Because Herod can't find him, he makes this decree where all firstborn sons that would have been around the age of Jesus are put to death because he is afraid of being supplanted as king. We we know that as the, the, the murder of the innocents. And yet, in the story that is told historically of Herod, this would merely just be a byline because it is just one more thing in a line of awful things that King Herod has done for fear of losing power, for fear of of not being revered, of not being worshipped, of not being regarded in the way that he feels like he should as king. So this is a dark 
period in the life of God's people who find themselves under Roman rule and then find themselves subjected to a king who has been placed by Rome to keep them at bay. But we also find that this would might be, in fact, is a dark time for Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. That there is just a, a cloud of, of darkness that has hung over their, their lives together. We read that they are faithful, that they are blameless before the Lord. Now, many of us would, would take great pride in the fact that we would be called blameless before the Lord. Because all of us are very aware of our shortcomings and the ways that we miss the mark. For Zechariah and Elizabeth to be called faithful and blameless before the Lord would have meant that they would have been held in high esteem except for this one thing. And that is that they were unable to have a child. For Zechariah, this would have weighed heavily upon him to think that his name would not be carried on and the, and the, the passing of it to a son. For Elizabeth, however, this would have been a crushing weight. I imagine the whispers that she would have heard in her younger years, the questions around why they are unable to conceive, why she is unable to be a mother, to do the thing that, that she felt like God created her to be able to do. Any who are unable to conceive ask such questions. And yet for those people, for God's people, it wasn't just a question of why not. It began to be a question around whether or not God was in some way punishing them. Has God closed up my womb because there's something in my life with which God has disple- is displeased? Is there some sin or something that God is displeased with that would, he would keep us from being able to have a child or to have children? And we read that they are beyond the years of, of childbearing. And we, we don't know, you know how old this might be, but it's believed that historically this would have you know, been around the age of 60 you know, apparently, Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't know that 60 was the new 40. But for whatever reason, they just found themselves in kind of this, this cloud that hung over their life of faithfulness and their marriage. And yet into a time that was dark culturally and into this shadow that hung over them, this shadow of disappointment, this word comes. This word of good news this promise that God is at work even in circumstances that seem impossible. That there's something that God has been doing in the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah's very name means God has remembered again. Elizabeth's name means the Lord is my oath. What must it have been like for this faithful couple through years of disappointment when they greeted each other every morning to hear that word spoken? Good morning, my husband, whose name means God has remembered again. Good morning, my bride, whose name means the Lord is my oath. A constant call to faith in the face of such great disappointment. And faithfully, Zechariah continued to serve. Faithfully, they continued to serve the Lord. We don't read that when Zechariah's time came to serve in the temple, that Zechariah said, you know what, I, I just, I don't think I can. So often we, we discount ourselves 
from stepping into what God is asking us to do because of some disappointment that exists in our lives or, or this idea, this sense that maybe God is displeased with us. And yet Zechariah faithfully serves. And what's interesting about what Zechariah was, was asked to do, the task that he was given to do at this moment this being, you know, the casting of lots, being selected out of his priestly order to be the priest who would stand before the most holy place and burn incense and offer prayers on behalf of the people. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity. This only happened, if at all, once in the life of a priest. There may have been other roles in the temple that he was asked to fill when his order was there to serve, but this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And we see faithful Zechariah step into this, taking advantage of the opportunity to continue to be faithful. There were other priests that would have gone in with him and they would have prepared the burnt offering and they would have prepared the sacrifice in order that Zechariah could go and stand before the holy of holies or the most holy place in the temple and on behalf of the people offer up prayers light the incense so that the smoke would have been seen coming out of the roof of the temple. We read that outside people were gathered after those priests who had served with him were finished with their tasks. They would have gone back outside to pray blessing over God's people that were gathered there in expectation, waiting to see the smoke go up. Something happened this time. This priest was taking too long to come out. Zechariah was, was held up because something happened that he did not expect. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I wonder in that moment if Zachariah is thinking, hey, none of the other guys that served told me this was going to happen. We see that this was unexpected. He didn't go in expecting that if I am faithful to do the thing that I have been asked to do, then God is going to show up in a miraculous way. And yet sometimes God interrupts just our faithful day-to-day routine lives in a way that is unexpected. An angel comes. Naturally, Zachariah is gripped with fear. This isn't like, you know, a little naked cherub baby with wings and, and a halo. Angels, as, as described and, and depicted in God's word, were, were fierce warriors, warriors of, of heaven who acted on behalf of God. And so the angel stands before Zechariah and says, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Good news spoken into a culture that is dark, into a world for God's people that is dark. Good news spoken into a cloud of disappointment that hangs over Zachariah and his wife. And we have to ask the question, what was Zachariah praying? Did he lay aside the prayers of the people and, and take this as an opportunity to pray for himself and his wife, Elizabeth? I don't know that he could have been called faithful as a priest, if that's what he had done. I don't know that he could have continued to be called blameless before the Lord if that's what he had done. Likely those were prayers that he and Elizabeth had prayed together for years. But imagine the prayers that Zechariah was offering up on behalf of the people. Prayers for rescue. Prayers for freedom. Prayers for liberation from an oppressive king and an oppressive kingdom. 
prayers that the Messiah would come. After 400 years of silence between Malachi, the last prophet who spoke on behalf of the Lord until now, imagine how those prayers may have begun to wane. And yet Zechariah was faithful to continue to offer prayers on behalf of the people. The angel said, your prayers have been heard. Prayers for God's people, but also the prayers that you and your wife Elizabeth have prayed for so long. You're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. He'll be great in power. He will come in the spirit of Elijah. He will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the long-awaited one. In the way that he proclaims this message of a coming kingdom and this good news, he will draw people back to the Lord. There's great joy for you to find in this. Friends, sometimes I think that we, we miss the reality that when God is at work in our lives, the benefit and the blessing of that is not meant to stop with us. It is meant to then impact and be a blessing on the lives of those around us. For Zechariah, his prayer was answered. But the benefit of that answered prayer the blessing that Zechariah and Elizabeth would experience was a benefit and a blessing to all who would come to see that God is at work even in impossible circumstances. Zechariah, when told that his wife will have a child, in verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Maybe later when he was able to talk, Elizabeth would say, it serves you right. Not being able to speak for nine months, telling the angel how old I was. My stepmom has been 29 years old for most of my life. You don't talk about a woman's age, right? How can I be sure of this? As if the angel standing before him isn't enough. He was focused on the problem and not on the possibility. Focused on the problem and not on the promise. There is no situation, as we'll see in the angel's conversation with Mary, there is no situation that is impossible for God. I wonder if our inability to hear the good news is because we live in a world that is so full of half-truths and disappointments. That every time we think something is swinging in a positive direction, we, we read a headline like we have in the, right, the, the, the past couple of days that a new variant has popped up. And we think, here we go again. Rather than using that as an opportunity to come before the Lord and say, I know that you're at work. Would you help me see it? Some of us live life just waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're ner nervous for good news to come because we think that just means that something else is coming too. My, my wife tends to be a worst case scenario kind of person. I, on the other hand, am her exact opposite and just think I, everything's gonna be fine. It's all gonna work out. Which means oftentimes some humorous discussion in our house. Yesterday, my family and I had the opportunity to go and serve concessions at the App State uh, football game. And the email that we got, the instruction was that you were to wear black pants, black shoes, a long sleeve shirt. And I said, well, I don't have black pants. And 
the black shoes I have aren't comfortable, so I'm not wearing those. I'm going to wear gray pants and neon green shoes. And she said, what? you can't do that. We, we have to wear black pants and black shoes. And I said, what? it's concessions. What's the, are they going to fire us from this volunteer job? It's going to be fine. And, and that's her least favorite thing to hear from me. It's going to be fine. But I wonder if we just become so conditioned to view the world through a lens of worst case scenario or waiting for the other shoe to drop that it dulls our ability to hear that there is good news. That we become too focused on the problem and not on the promise. Too focused on the problem and not on the possibility. It is one thing for us to believe in God. It is another entirely for us to believe God's promises because we read that every single one of them is yes and amen in the person of Jesus. I'm gonna close with this thought from Mark Batterson, who's a pastor in D.C. In his book, Draw the Circle, a book on prayer, he says there comes a moment when you must quit talking to God about the mountain in your life and start talking to the mountain about your God. You proclaim his power, you declare his sovereignty, you affirm his faithfulness, you stand on his word, you cling to his promises. Goliath held an entire army captive through fear. His weapon was intimidation, and that is how our enemy operates. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but the important word is like. He's an imposter. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he roars, everything is shaken. All authority under heaven and on earth is his and we are his children. Why don't we live like it, give like it, serve like it, and pray like it? Maybe we need to quit playing defense and start playing offense. Maybe we need to quit letting our circumstances get between us and God and let God get between us and our circumstances. Maybe we need to stop talking to God about our problem and start talking to our problem about God. Zechariah is given, given the promise of good news. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of waiting, this news that this is not all there is. God is at work. God is at work on your behalf, Zechariah, and on behalf of your wife, Elizabeth, but more importantly, God is at work in behalf of humanity. It is good news. God has not left us to fend for ourselves, but in the person of Jesus, in an unassuming small corner of the world, God is going to break into the darkness and he continues to do so today. Friends, may we be a people whose ears are open to hearing the good news. Even when we don't believe it's possible, even when we can't wrap our minds around how it can come? Would we be willing to believe that because God has done it once, God is still at work and God will be faithful to fulfill his promise that Jesus will return, that God will make his dwelling with people, that that is where our home is meant to be. It's good news for us and it's good news for the world around us. Amen.